What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Matt and I are calling a trend here. We had some good CPI data last week. We had some good PPI data this week. We're calling that a trend. This Fed can cool its jets. What's the market telling you? Yeah, well, the market's certainly thinking that, you know, we're fully priced now for only 50 basis points without much chance of a uh, of a 75 at all uh, for December. And then, you know, one or two. Uh, 25 basis point hikes after that. And, and, and you know, this idea that whether or not this is a trend, uh, if you look at the month-over-month -month numbers for both CPI and PPI, this is now four months in a row that we've been at significantly lower month-on-month -month prints than the previous eight months. So so if, if we think about this from just from a time perspective, if we stay at this kind of level, um, inflation will come down to almost where, where inflation break-evens are currently pricing, so where one-year inflation swaps are pricing. Um, uh, basically, in the year, in in the next eight months, so 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 it makes perfect sense. You know, I I think you know the idea that inflation has peaked, people are looking for confirmation of that. Now that again, now that we have four months of uh, you know prints that are are pretty reasonable for both CPI and PPI, it seems that you know we have turned a corner here. So, what are you expecting now in terms of a terminal rate? I mean, um, when I was on sabbatical. Um, sure. In the, in the Maldives or wherever it, you were. It seemed I like I was in Raja Ampat in Indonesia. But I was reading the news from afar yeah, and right. I saw that, you know, expectations were climbing over 6%. Are they, yeah. had they come back down? Oh, yeah, yeah. They've come way back down. Um, so, yeah, you know, when we, when we look at what, um, uh, what Fed funds futures are now pricing, we're, we're talking more about a 5% top end terminal rate is what's currently being priced. I think that that's reasonable. Maybe, you know, if, if we do get more prints like this on inflation over the next couple of months, maybe the Fed doesn't hike in, um, uh, in, in March. And if they don't, then you might even have a slightly lower terminal rate, which was more what our expectations were for, for quite a long time of, of a top end of 4.75%. But, you know, we're, we're, we're playing semantics here, right? We're talking about one hike more or one hike less. We're, we're certainly not going to 6%, and we're probably not only going going to 4.5%, we're going to go to somewhere in between there. So you're talking about, um, you know, at, at the upper bound at four and three quarters or 5%. I think either way, the Fed has obviously taken a lot of liquidity out of the market. Mm. They're still doing quantitative tightening. So they're shrinking the size of their balance sheet overall. And all of those things are having an effect on financial conditions. And, and you know, you, you heard a lot of uh, Fed speakers, you know, Lyle Brainerd on, on Bloomberg television and radio yesterday mentioned the same thing, um, you know, about financial conditions being much tighter. But these things don't don't these things work with a lag, right? And and it's not it doesn't happen immediately, right? So housing we know has fallen, right? Housing activity has fallen, so that mm. has knock on effects that don't take a month or two or three. It takes six months, nine months to for that to filter through the economy. So 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 I think we are going to see a, a slowing, not a 
not only of inflation, but also of just economic activity in general. And that's going to be, quite frankly, for the market that I look at, that's going to be good for Treasuries. And and I think we've seen a peak in, in Treasury yields. At this well, point. I mean, for investors, timing is so key, right? Uh, these things work with a lag. It kind of reminds me of shooting skeet. You gotta, you're not going to shoot where shooting the what? skeet you're not going to shoot where the pigeon is now. You're going to shoot. You got to shoot where the pigeon is going to be when your um, when your uh, um, BBs get there. So, I saw a note yesterday from Matthew Mish at UBS. He says, um, "2023 in his global credit outlook, he says once in a decade opportunity." Nice. But timing is everything. So what do you think? Are we looking at, for, for example, on the long end? You know, we're seeing mom and pop and ETF start to go after. Um, uh, uh, long duration debt right now because they think they're locking in peak rates. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I I, <laughs> I put out a note two weeks ago saying that no, that we we were at peak rates and and uh, you know that was a little bit prescient on my um, on my part. Nice. Maybe, but it's uh, you know we're I, I think the, the idea that you get a, a bigger sell off what you would need in order for the bond market to sell off significantly more than it already has is really for another uptick in inflation and better economic activity and it's hard to see how things get better from here right, it, right. it's you know things might stay the same which would be the great scenario and the soft landing scenario for uh, for the Federal Reserve but it, it's hard to see how they, they improve significantly with financial conditions all right all right um, enough on the rate side enough on the rates Sunday, the World Cup starts, Ira. As you know, I have Holland as my sleeper pick. Where else should I be looking for value? I don't want to go Spain or Germany or France or any of that kind of stuff. Okay. Give, me, give me a sleeper pick. So I am going so, so I said Germany when you asked me this question last yes. week. Paul, I am going to go with Taylor Rockwell's sleeper pick from the Total Soccer Show. Give him a shout out from uh, from the podcast that I listen to. He thinks Japan is going to get out of a group that includes Germany really? and Spain. Wow. And if Japan does get through there, then they can make a bit of a run. I don't know. I don't think that they could win the whole thing, but you know, could they make a run to the semifinals for the first time? Maybe. You know, they they have a really good. They played really well against the U.S. last month, and they're yeah. Uh, you know, they they have some really talented players. So, so maybe Japan. That would be, but I, 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 let me ask quick. Okay, only yeah, 30 yeah. seconds. In, in a day and age where a lot of the players on a team don't really come from that country, does it matter as much? Well, I think, well, Japan, they're almost all yeah. were born in Japan for sure. Now they play in the Premier League and the Bundesliga in Spain, right? But they're, okay. but, but they're mostly Japanese national. All right, next time we talk to you, it's all soccer all the time, and we're going to ignore that Federal Reserve because the World Cup is coming up, folks. That's Ira Jersey. He does it all for Bloomberg Intelligence. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So we got one of those green bee things. Shri Natarajan, he's a senior reporter of Bloomberg News, uh, joins us here. Uh, you and your partner in crime, Max Abelson, you guys have a story out there on the Bloomberg terminal about Goldman Sachs. What did you guys find? Well, something that's alarming on two levels. Very rarely do you have someone who's risen to the level of a Goldman partner airing their ugliest experiences, even if it is in an internal complaint at the firm. And then when you look at how the process went and the fact that Goldman Sachs settled with the complainant to a tune of more than 
well more than $12 million, an eight-figure payout, tells you that A, what was in the complaint wasn't the most pleasing reading and the price they were willing to pay to avoid embarrassment. And that's why this is important. So this is a sexism claim, correct? Correct. This is a former Goldman partner uh, around two years ago settled with the bank after filing what was a, what we understand to be a voluminous complaint that detailed a sexist culture at the bank, including senior managing making crude and dismissive remarks, uh, uh, pay disparities, the lack of promotions for women. Some of these issues have been things that Goldman and everyone else on Wall Street have been dealing with and have been trying to get past and make real progress. But the fact that this happened in 2020, the fact that most of the issues and incidents described in the complaint were from 2018 and 19, tell you that this is not from a Wall Street long, long, long ago. This is very much the now and present. So are we talking about the kind of pay disparities that we don't see elsewhere, or are these kind of pay disparities common across Wall Street? Unclear, right? It's, it's, it's very, I mean, I'm assuming the complainant in this case would only have had access to internal compensation figure or an understanding of what pay was like at Goldman Sachs. It, it would, would, it, would we be right in saying that Goldman Sachs for somehow is an outlier and the rest of the Wall Street is, uh, can be absolved of some of these sins? Perhaps not. In fact, most definitely not. This is this is a thread that runs across Wall Street and across many other industries. And Wall Street in particular has, maybe just because, you know, they're high-profile company names, they're high-profile people, uh, they make a lot of money, they're, they're always a target of, a, you know, a lot of activists. But Wall Street's been a, an industry that's tried to put this front and center and tried to, at least uh, from external perspectives, deal with this issue aggressively, yet it's another setback here when, you know, your story suggesting that they got a lot of work to do as an industry. That's a very interesting point because when you think of the post-Me Too reckoning, we've seen a lot of troubling things emerge from many other industries, not so much from the highest ranks of Wall Street. One theory has been that Wall Street's go-go days were perhaps in the 70s and 80s and- Hey, I was there in the 80s. Well- Darn- good time. I, I, I will still stick to the fact that I just mentioned Wall Street's go-go days were perhaps yeah, in over. the 70s and 80s and uh, raunchy remarks, lewd behavior wasn't all that uncommon. So maybe there is one theory is Wall Street has cleaned up a little bit and has managed to get past that. But at the same time, you also remember these are firms with very deep pockets. These are firms that have a process in their employment contracts where a lot of the claims are handled in secretive arbitration. In fact, for the longest time, even sexual harassment complaints had to go through the forced arbitration process. Uh, so there is some validity to the theory that some of the worst things never got aired mm. because they were able to dip into their wallets and pay up big time to score some of these settlements and keep these things private and secret. Well, and also, it seems from your reporting that some of the alleged bad behavior wasn't typical, right? Um, you describe a situation where David Solomon made a comment and then you say that his colleagues were surprised because it was so out of character. So it's as if he let something slip and now and now he's paying like $20 million to cover it up. I mean, let's be very clear. All the understanding we have that CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, wasn't central to the complaint. Yes, there is an inc incident described uh, that looks to quote something that David Solomon did say to a gathering of male colleagues. Uh, uh, that that was crude, to put it mildly, but there were many other managers that were sort of allegedly implicated here, many other managers who were quoted, and that's one of the things that rattled the top rungs of the bank, is 
the broad institutional issue that this problem tried to sketch out, the scope for public embarrassment because of that, and the need for them to try and make it go away. All right, Shri, good stuff. We appreciate it. Shri Natarajan, a senior reporter with Bloomberg News, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio. Hey, when you want to get a handle on how the retailer's doing out there, how the consumer's doing out there, you really uh, can look at the, some of the results from the big retailers. And we had a couple of big ones today. Walmart reported numbers, some good numbers. Uh, Home Depot, I thought the numbers were good. They have some inventory issues. We're going to get to the latest there. But we're going to break it on down. We're going to roundtable this stuff. We do it with Jen Bartashis. She covers all things retail for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in Princeton. Uh, and Drew Redding, he covers the home builders for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we got both of those folks on the line here. Um, Jen, let's talk with you, start with you. Uh, Walmart, I mean, people are still spending money, aren't they? They are. Um, and I, I think that's actually you know, the, the bright spot here is that the consumer is holding up relatively well. Um, they are shifting where they're spending and what they're spending on, but they are still spending money. And that is very important as we're looking at the economic environment and heading into that very important holiday season. So the holiday season, important, but I mean, how is it going to roll out um, this year? We, we've gotten so much bad news from shippers, you know, uh, yep. FedEx has just said they're going to furlough workers. Um, we're going to get DHL tomorrow. Uh, Thursday, I believe. Deutsch. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's German, but it's a very big, you know, global shipper. And then Amazon cutting jobs going into holiday season. I was shocked. Yeah, what's up with that? I thought they were just. Yeah. What is up with that, Jen? Well, you know, when you're, you're looking at cutting jobs, a lot of the jobs are more corporate type jobs as opposed to jobs that are in distribution centers. Um, and you know, we started off with people going into the holiday planning to hire fewer people this year than they have in, in prior years. And I think we're seeing that come through, and then we're seeing this additional round of layoffs that are more in the, in the product development and the, the corporate side. Um, but it does, it does indicate that that could be a really big boon for retailers like Target and Walmart that have store bases. Um, because if there are delays in shipping and you're worried that your gifts aren't going to get there, they have great alternatives in terms of people either going to the store or being able to pick things up at the store to make sure that they have those gifts. So Drew, it could actually be a positive for these retailers. Drew, right, let me bring you in. What's the differenti differentiation here? I mean, um, I feel like Lowe's and Home Depot is going to be a very different story than necessarily, um, well, even Amazon, right? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a good quarter for Home Depot, and you're right, they do have a different customer base than, than much of um, the rest of the retail environment. And I think it speaks to the resiliency of the market, despite you know what we're seeing in, in housing with transactions down 10 to 15%, maybe down another 10% next year. I, I do think it's important to point out, though, that growth this quarter, and really for the last several quarters, has been driven exclusively by higher average tickets. So a lot of that is the result of product inflation. Um, you've got some commodity inflation from, from earlier in the quarter. And then, you know, particularly for Home Depot, there's there's relative strength due to their exposure to professional customers, which tend to be a little bit higher spending. Uh, you know, on the flip side, though, customer transactions um, have declined for, for several quarters now. We think that's going to probably remain a headwind, you know, as we go to next year, just given our expectations for housing to remain weak. Hey, Drew, talk to me about the Home Depot. The inventory number grew 25%. That kind of 
really jumped out at me. It seems like the retail industry has had plenty of quarters to deal with the inventory issues, and a lot of them have kind of done it very well. What's what's different at Home Depot? Yeah, so it's it's actually down a little bit from last quarter, but inventories relative to last year are higher because you've got a lot of product inflation um, due to costs. There's also something interesting they pointed out is a mix-up in in a mix shift higher to higher value products and what they're selling. So there hasn't been a trade down among consumers. Um, they've also made a lot of investments in inventory for the holidays. They pointed out that they had the best um, year for Halloween sales on record. So we think there's probably some investments being made ahead of the, of the Christmas season. And, and then they also pointed out that the higher inventories are a result of some of the supply chain challenges that we've seen over the last year. So, I mean, part of that's probably the fact that they, they were ordering ahead of anticipated challenges. Now you're starting to see demand slow a little bit relative to when they made those purchases. Drew, just I guess, since we got you here, the home market here, the builders, I mean, are they going to build stuff here? I mean, you've got interest, more mortgage rates at 7% here. I mean, are they going to build houses over the next year? So it's, it's a good question. We think there's probably going to be a pretty severe pullback in housing starts. We've already started to see it. Um, you know, we're thinking that from, you know, the peak of last year to where we eventually trough could be somewhere around the 25% decline, Ooh. just based on what we've seen in prior housing downturns. So builders have certainly taken their, their foot off the gas pedal. They're not spending as much on land and they're taking a, a degree of caution you know, that being said, I think I think the group as a whole is in a much better position relative to the last downturn, which is, you know, where everybody tends tends to look. Jen, how does inflation play into a factor into this holiday season? Because at the same time as we're looking at, you know, 7.7% CPI prints, um, we're also telling consumers that these big box stores have to cut prices because they have too much inventory. So how's the consumer reacting? Well, it's, it's a delicate balance for the retailers because they want to have a compelling value proposition and consumers are seeking that, that you know, low price, um, but they also need to not completely blow up their margins. Um, and so, as, you know, as we look forward to the holiday season, we're expecting to see a much higher rate of promotions um, because it is going to be competitive for the, the dollars that people are willing to spend. Um, so the promotion rate will be up there. Um, but we, we are expecting that as inflation comes down, these are the retailers that pivot very quickly and try to bring prices down as quickly as they can. Um, and Walmart alluded to that on their call today. And so um, it, it'll, be a, it'll be an interesting challenge to see how they manage through the inventory without needing it, and still can meet that value proposition, have some discounts, but they may not be um, crazy huge discounts in order to preserve a little bit of margin. It, it will help to see how the, the, the season unfolds. And if sales are slow, discounts will go up. Hey, Jen, just about 20 seconds. If I go into a Walmart and shop for my G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip, is it going to be on the shelves? How's the supply chain? Uh, supply chain is much better. Um, so they've worked very hard at inventory being, you know, and having in stocks. Um, so this year they brought, they brought product in earlier. There seems to be, at this point, plenty of product on the shelves. Um, and we'll see how long that lasts through the holiday season. But right now it's at a healthy level. All right, Jen, great stuff. Appreciate it. Jen Bartashi, she covers all things retail for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Drew Redding, our housing analyst. Uh, we got the roundtable. That's great stuff. You can bring these really smart people together, get perspectives on the retail we space. We've got another roundtable coming up. Do we? 
Oh, we've got this guy, Eli Manning, coming up. All right, we'll talk to him in a couple of minutes. But we love talking to the BI folks. They are wicked smart. As and, well as uh, some former of the best NFL quarterbacks. Yeah, and some of the best uh, analysts on Wall Street. Uh, Walmart, Home Depot reporting numbers. Retailers put up some good nums here. Does that bode well for the holiday shopping season? What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's talk private equity here. Private equity in the sports biz. How can that go wrong? Former New York Giant quarterback and partner with the investment firm Brand Velocity, uh, Eli Manning, joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Brand Velocity founding and managing partner Steve Leibowitz. Um, Eli, Steve, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Don't Studio. Don't we have to talk about sports Real? first? Thank you. <laughs> no. That's, I'm, a, I'm a Wall Street guy. For last? I'm a Wall Street guy. All these okay. knuckleheads that want to talk sports. I want to talk Wall Street. So, Eli, private equity. You've, you've now stepped back from football a few years. You and your brother are doing all kinds of crazy TV stuff, Omaha Manning Productions, yeah. Manning Cast, which is very fun. Um, but talk to us about kind of what you were thinking about in the private equity space. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to join with the with Brand Velocity Group. We've been with them about a year and just really have had a uh, kind of a private equity one-on-one uh, and learning about the business. And uh, just I, I've been a part of one acquisition, and it was in the sports world. It was Score Sports, which is a – uh, designer, manufacturer, seller of youth sports uniforms, which uh, yep. I am passionate about. I have four kids. I'm, they're playing every sport. I think that's one, uh, I think, uh, business and area that so many people are familiar with. They, they love. They love their kids playing sports, but it's also in a, uh, in, in a part of this where it is uh, the, the costs are reasonable. You, know, you yep. can get a, your jersey and your kit for 18 to $20, and so – for me, it's promoting families to get your kids outside, get them playing sports, get them in, in different things. It's the life lessons that are taught through sports. And so, you know, the cost of a uniform shouldn't be something holding your back from, right. from getting your, your, your kids out there and, and getting them active. Steve, talk to us about your view, your private equity view of sports. I was just mentioning that Eli it just seems like, like I've been following the media industry for 30 years. And my big media companies, whether it's Disney or Viacom, they spend more and more and more on sports rights every year it seems like a natural spot for private yeah but you're not buying the big 10 rights like what are you buying how do you screen for companies yeah uh good questions uh sports it really is the media as you mentioned that that underpins all the growth with the media rights and there's just a scarcity with all the entertainment options that people have out there nowadays live sports still is the king and as long as live sports is the king there's going to be insatiable demand for it. And that demand leads to the media rights, which in turn leads to the growth of the franchises. So we think it's a great industry. I mean, it's a broad industry. If you take sports, sports adjacent, you're talking you know, $500 billion plus global industry. And it may be arguably one of the only industries that really is recession proof because people always say recession resistant, recession proof. Sports really, the data backs it up. So what kind of companies are you looking at? What are the sizes? How long do you want to stay involved? Um, what's your plan? So we're looking at companies typically with 10 million of greater of, of, of EBITDA. We're looking at all sorts of businesses, consumer, sports adjacent businesses, as well as you know potentially minority interest in sports teams or uh, 
you know, uh, controlling interest in sports teams in Europe. So those are all sorts of different things. I mean, like any other investment, you can't just rely on the greater fool theory. You've got to do your homework. You've got to look at the valuation. Sports Crypto. clearly fetches more because of the growth. But uh, you've got to be cognizant of it. And uh, we will only swing at the pitch if we think it's the right pitch. That doesn't guarantee we'll be right, but you have to be super patient and super careful. You were lucky not to get into the whole crypto thing. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. some of your rivals have been deeply involved with FTX. I don't know if you noticed that. Yes, I've heard, I've heard some uh, stories. Other than Bonecoin, which you were shilling with Al Roker, right? Wasn't that a, it was like Frank's Red Hots. Yes. If you eat the most buffalo wings, you can get, you get some an coins. NFT. Yes. Um, but how did you avoid that? I mean, so many uh, people were sucked in. I guess it was big money. It's an exciting story as well. Um, were you just too busy with other stuff? Yeah, I and mean, I think just the idea that I just didn't quite understand it. Like, you know, there's something that comes you know, to that. And I didn't quite understand private equity a year ago also, but I, <laughs> it made sense. Like you buy a company that's has doing well, they're making revenue, they're making money, there's real growth, there's a profit there, and we can come in and, and make it better with crypto. Uh, you kind of heard these stories and people making gazillions of dollars and great, you know, but you just kind of didn't know like where it was going, how is this going to work out. So uh, had a great team of people just saying, you know, let's just learn more, let's learn more. And we just kind of kept trying to learn more, but never, never pulled the trigger on it. So no crypto, but uh, yes to private equity. And the cool thing is, you know, um, a, a skeptic or a cynic's view of private equity is, you know, these locusts that come in and eat up the company, borrowing tons of debt with the brand and then destroying the value of what the employees have built. You guys are doing it in a very different way. You are sharing the gains. I think that's like your mantra, right? Yes. And you're letting the employees in on the deal. Yeah, and, and that's the idea. And that's why I got involved and, and, and Steve started this BBG and got involved just to change the, the culture of private equity. And he truly cares and we care about the people. I mean, the people are the most important thing with these companies that we're looking at and the culture of these businesses. And uh, we have a program called Share the Gains where we're giving 10% of our carried interest back to the employees that are not part of the upper management. They're getting taken care of in different ways, but we want the, the people who are working at these companies to be a part of the success. You know, when we sell it and we make a profit, we want them to kind of be a part of that and know that they can, you know, if we do well and they're going to do well also, and they're going to be a part of this. And it really creates a team environment. Steve, what do you think, uh, you know, partnering up with, with a guy as accomplished as Eli is in many walks of life, what does that bring to your firm to, and, and kind of how do you look to kind of leverage that? Well, the first thing I'll say is that Eli is an incredibly humble person, and he is the same person in private that he is in, in public, which that's critical, because for us, like, culture is everything, and um, Eli is just perfect fit with our culture. Like, Eli, his passion for, 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 for the culture of the companies, for, for um, you know, everybody loves Eli. Um, so when Eli believes in Except something- Except for Tom Brady. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. So that, and Trump, Tom Brady's parents probably as well. Probably, yeah. A few Super Bowls uh, taken away there uh, between Eli and, and uh, Peyton. But um, but we love, um, you know, his, his connectivity. I mean, and everybody loves him. And when he says it, he's saying what the truth and what he believes. So it just really fits well with what we want to do and getting our message out with Share the Gains. Yep. You know, we view that as very important. We think private equity often... Um, you know, companies aren't made of spreadsheets. Uh, they're made of people, and private equity often loses sight of that. And Eli is, is a big believer in the message. 
he really can get that message out, and, and our hope is to really make an impact through that message. Let's talk about the Manning cast, because all of my buddies... Uh, the my, Manning cast? That is fun. Everybody it's loves to format. watch it. Um, it's a new format, and it's something that... I thought this was gonna something like this was going to happen 10 years ago, and, and nobody ever really did it right until you guys have done it. What's, your, what's been your experience? How do you get into it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we got into it, just the idea. We, we saw, you know, Kurt Herbstreet uh, broadcast the game because he had COVID. And so okay. he couldn't be at the game. So he just He's often it. at The Ohio State University. Yeah, the Ohio State, exactly. okay. So okay. he just did it from home and, and kind of talking with Peyton. and said, well, we could, I, I want to broadcast games from home. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> like sitting on my couch, watching football, making fun of my brother. Like that sounds like a good job. <laughs> and you're like, pay me for it? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I know I went to Ole Miss, but I, I know a good deal when I see one. And so – that was the idea and really you know just saying hey what would it be like if Peyton and I were in your living room watching the game how would we watch it you know we're not going to talk about the first and ten run for two yards and tell you where the running back went to college like we don't know that answer <laughs> we don't know where he went to college and, and you probably don't care either so let's uh, bring in some guests have it fun we'll talk some X's and O's tell you what's going through the quarterback's mind right now what you know how should they handle this situation have Peyton call 67 timeouts you know when Denver needs to call a timeout That's and right. so you know it, it's really just kind of uh having fun and, and in a different way to watch the game and you guys get a great list of guests that come in I mean it's super eclectic how does that all come about well, I think you just you realize there's so many people that have a passion for sports and have a passion for football, and they grew up with a certain team. And we used, so we try to bring in people that are associated with one of the two teams playing that night, and, and whether it's Barack Obama or Snoop Dogg and them talking about the, the, the 80 Chicago Bears, 85 Chicago Bears or the, the Steelers of the 70s with Snoop Dogg, and he's listing players that he grew up watching. So, you know, Condoleezza Rice talking about the Browns. I mean, you have so many people that have a passion for their hometown football team and, and for them to kind of talk about that and get it out it's natural for them and we have fun and we, we don't ask any hardball questions like you guys are asking today we, we try to keep it pretty simple you so got, you guys you guys you've been so busy since leaving the the nfl you have a job like a day job with the giants and you're doing the manning cast and the private equity and, Eli's and, places yes. i mean yeah i mean exactly so how's, how's, it, how's eli's places going to play out are you going to keep doing those uh, we got to decide. I got to talk with Big Bro, and and I'm up I'm up for a contract uh, renewal, so I'll have to you know have some some tough discussions with him. I think. But you, I mean, you really have, and Peyton as well, um, developed a knack for broadcasting, and you know, a way that a lot of athletes can't. Um, are you going to be? appearing in Hollywood movies? Is, is there any plan not. for what's your agent say? I don't consider myself a broadcaster, by the way. Just, <laughs> I don't, I think they, they have a, I don't think I would have been good at broadcasting in the typical way of being in studio and booth and, and doing those things. I think the f fact that I could yeah, sit on my couch, you know, just talk football, keep it very casual, uh, fits more, um, you know, uh, style for me. And so I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I enjoy the football part, staying involved in the game. I enjoy, uh, but also learning, learning about private equity. And, you know, each each day and each deal we look at and company we look at, I'm learning something new and, and just understanding how businesses work and, you know, just the, the, the time frame of how you decide whether you want to buy a company, like looking at the profit loss, looking at statements, looking, you know, do, do, do diligence, you know, giving a pitch, all these things were new to me, exciting for me, and I'm enjoying the process. Hey, Steve, you're no slouch yourself. I mean, you went to some 
trade school up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I think. Uh, <laughs> New York State high school chess champion? What's the difference between Harvard and Ole Miss, really? Yeah, at the end of the day. I mean, you got to take English. you got to take math. What's, what's, what's a, a big deal? A lot of people call Harvard the Ole Miss of the North. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we interview every uh, Thursday uh, Coach Murphy from Harvard because we carry the Harvard uh, football games up in Boston on our radio station. You're a Bills fan. Tough two weeks, dude. But you've got, uh, you got a great quarterback. Don't worry about it. But this is the story I want to get. Your family farm is supplying this year's Rockefeller Christmas tree? Yes. Yeah, that's just, that? that's just nuts. Yeah, basically, so my family... Did, did, did like, your great-grandfather plant it or something? I mean... I asked... It was, like, 90 <laughs> years old, yeah. so I don't even know who planted it. But our family own... My father's generation owns the property, and the head gardener at Rockefeller Center was actually... And they get hundreds of submissions for the tree, and so he was going to drive to see another tree in Glens Falls, and he was driving down the street, happened to drive by a vacant lot, which had the tree on it, right. which we own. He's like, that is the tree. That's the so tree. So our tree was like discovered like a 1920s <laughs> starlet or something. Right. So it's just like a wild experience, you know, for yeah. us to well, have. Well, you got to be the tree lighting. The, Le- oh, the Lebowitz are. family tree. Of course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. gathered around for Christmas. Ring, right? <laughs> yeah, Eli, give me 30 <laughs> seconds on the Giants. Seven and two. Yeah. I mean... These guys are good. I think we've got a quarterback, too, by the way. He went to Duke, yes. so um, he's with me. What do you think? Yeah, Daniel Jones is playing great. Saquon's running, you know, yeah. running hard. Defense is playing well. So, and, and, the, and the most important thing, they're finding ways to win close games, and they're finding ways to close games out, and that's something we haven't been able to do for a while. And, and what that does, it also just prepares you for late in the year. You're going to have these close games. Can you win them? They're, they're, they're kind of tried and tested, and uh, I think it's going to be a good run. If you ever get tired of having Barack Obama or Condoleezza Rice over, you know, Paul and I are oh, yeah, happy we'll to come over and watch a game right. with yeah, you. Absolutely. You're in no Summit question. already, so exactly. you're just, right down the neighborhood. Knock on the door. Cool. Good stuff. Eli Manning, he plays football. I, I don't know what he does. He's doing a ton of stuff. He's doing private equity. He's doing private equity. He's doing equity. broadcast. Yeah, so, I mean, no sitting on the couch for this guy. Steve Leibowitz, he's managing partner, founder of uh, the firm, is known as Brand Velocity, and they joined us here in a Bloomberg Interactive. BVG. They're doing some good, good stuff. We appreciate them stopping by. We are come back to earth a little bit. That was exciting, wasn't it? That was it? fun, yeah. Yeah, it's good always stuff. fun. You know, I took my mom for her 60th birthday. I took her to the uh, Super Bowl when Eli and the Giants played oh. Tom Brady and... Uh, what is that team called? The Patriots. Patriots, yep. Um, out in Luke Oil Stadium. Where's that? Luke Oil Stadium. Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Okay, that's Indianapolis. Yeah. It was okay. pretty cool. That's I also great. got to see Jane's Addiction before the game. Ooh, good and show. I got to meet Anna Ferris. Oh, that was, was just pretty, a big weekend. Pretty there. sweet. Good weekend. Take for, care of your mom. Good for job. me and my mom, especially. But we want to get back to uh, finance right now. And we're going to do that with the Automated Liquidity Exchange. We're going to talk to the CEO of Alex. Shinzu Su, um, she joins us down the line right now. And uh, Shinzu, talk to me first about the collapse of FTX. What does that mean? Ken Griffin said it's a problem for the entire industry, the entire financial world, not just crypto. What do you read into it? Hi, Matt, Paul. Um, Thank you for having me today on your show. I mean, man, the um, collapse of the FTX exchange was so devastating. I think the crypto industry has experienced the most shocking event since uh, Mount Gox. I don't know if you remember the Mount Gox that was around uh, yeah, um, I do. 2013, right? Mount Gox, uh, M-T-G-O-X, <laughs> right? It stands for Magic That's the Gathering right. Online Exchange. It was the first right. big bust in crypto. 
Yeah, I think up to 850,000 Bitcoin was stolen. That's about 136 billion worth of Bitcoin were stolen. And uh, many, many people in the crypto industry is in the same opinion as me that the collapse of this FTX exchange is pretty much as bad as that one. So can you imagine just in one week, the third largest crypto exchange FTX, they experience a bank run, they halted customer withdrawal, they enter into a failed talk to be acquired by the competitive Binance. They discovered that they are short between eight to 10 billion customer funds. They got hacked about half a billion. Well, the file chapter 11. I mean, hacked. Yeah, I mean, is, hacked. was it maybe an inside job? Who took those coins? What What do you uh, think about how it happened, Shinsu? Yeah, it, it really started with, uh, it's really interesting. It started with, uh, with a CoinDesk article, right? It featured a breakdown of a leaked Alameda research balance sheet. Now, Alameda is a um, hedge fund, is a trading firm that also started, uh, founded by uh, Sam uh, Bankman-Fried. And what happened was that as of June 30th, you could see that the Alameda's asset amounted to about 14.6 billion. However, its single biggest asset was 3.66 billion of unlocked FTT. And FTT is the FTX own token. Yeah. And then the third largest entry was uh, two, a bit more than 2 billion of FTX collateral. So basically the majority of Alameda's equity is actually FTX own token, um, FTT. And this is obviously, you know, the completely runway risk. And I credit Lynn Alden on the Twitter. She she used this example. She said, imagine McDonald's make its own money and call it clown bucks, right? It <laughs> keeps most of it and then they sell some of it to the market. And then McDonald's then send their remaining clown bucks to its trading arm, which is Alameda, which then use it as a collateral for the actual loans from McDonald's. Exactly. Itself. That's the problem. I mean, I mean SBF told yeah. the New York Times yesterday that um, Alameda had a large margin position at FTX, which is another way of saying they had all of FTX's money. And they essentially lost it. What do you do yeah. at Alex? What does the automated liquidity exchange do? Because liquidity was one of the big problems here. Right. So um, Alex Center Automated Exchange, we are a DeFi um, built on Bitcoin. What it means is that all the transactions are settled on Bitcoin. Um, I really like this. I really appreciate this opportunity to come on the air today to really to um, say that out loud that there's really a huge difference between DeFi and CeFi, right? And I want to stress that CeFi should not be confused with DeFi. So if we look back to what happened with FTX, right? Who called Bankman free? It's not SEC, it's not CFTC. It was cryptography and crypto community. SPF could influence regulators legally bribe politicians with donations and show fake balance and due to the opaqueness of CFAC, but it could not beat Bitcoin's verification. Right. Okay? I, so, what, yeah, go ahead. I just should Matt. point out that, um, you know, uh, bribery is uh, illegal and that's a big allegation. So we don't know what happened yet. We don't know yet. We don't want to say, um, we don't want to make that kind of accusation. Uh, of course, SBF was a big political donor. I think he gave... 30, 40, 50 billion, a million dollars, million with an M, um, to uh, political candidates in this election cycle. But 
you know, we still have yet to find out. The the interesting thing, I think, is that um, this was supposed to be Bitcoin initially. It's a trustless currency, right? And it's all about decentralized finance. But at the end of the day, too many people trusted Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX gave him their private keys, essentially giving him their uh, fiat and crypto to hold. And of course, he seemingly then used it, wasted it, spent it, and they didn't know uh, that was going to happen. Is he going to be prosecuted for fraud? Or do you think there could be criminal charges coming? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, this FTX collapse reflects the failure, not only by, you know, from an inexperienced CEO, who puts short-term greed ahead of long-term value. I mean, I I myself have been regulated for more than two decades because I was working on Wall Street. I think the crypto industry needs more, you know, grown up in the room, experienced financiers that, you know, stay on the course and apply the best practice. But, you know, you rightly say so, you know, CFI has custody of users' deposit and users are left trusting in these people running that business to carry out the services for you. And then coming back to, you know, DeFi, you know, brilliant builder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, decentralized finance, right? You know, what happened with FTS is not possible happening on DeFi. Why? Because it's computer code, it's smart contract that provides the services offered. You keep your funds in your own wallet and enter into peer-to-peer transaction via smart contract. There's no middleman. There's no centralized authority. So, you know, the event over the past few months make it really, really clear to the whole industry and us builders is that we need more DeFi services. The goal of the crypto is to eliminate the risk and the inefficiency in traditional finance, right? right? And to build a more efficient, decentralized, open financial ecosystem. And the one that, you know, where to put it simply, the need for trust is removed. Right. And to quote CZ, the CEO of Binance, you know, DeFi is the end game. Right. All right, Chinzu, thank you so much uh, for breaking that down for us. We're all still learning a lot about crypto in general and kind of what went wrong at FTX in particular. Uh, Shinzu Su, uh, she's CEO of Alex, uh, the automated liquidity exchange. This Federal Reserve has been clear this year about raising interest rates to fight inflation. Rising interest rate environment has had an impact on a broad variety of industries, not the least of which is the housing industry, the housing manufacturing business, uh, really feeling the brunt of that. So we want to get some color as to how that business is dealing with this new environment. Uh, we turn to Brian Fairbanks. He's the CEO of Trex. Uh, it is a New York Stock Exchange listed company, T-R-E-X. Not surprisingly, is the ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminal. They manufacture non-wood decking alternative products, you know, all decking, railing, all that kind of stuff that people do to their homes. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here. Really appreciate it. Um, tell us about your business. How is it faring? I know I'm just looking at the chart. The stock's down this year is, you know, one of those, as many are, but one of those sectors that doesn't really do well with rising interest rates. But talk to us about the, the state of your business. Hey, good morning, Matt and Paul. Thanks for having me on this morning. The consumers for outdoor living products have remained remarkably resilient uh, over, over this year. Past couple of years, we've grown quite significantly as people have been spending more time expanding their existing living areas. As we moved into this year, of course, we've seen inflation start to catch up 
with the consumer. Prices of our products have gone up as well. But what we've seen is rather than growing this year, the volume sold by our company uh, is about flat with the prior prior year. Uh, and given the kind of growth that we've seen, we're pretty pleased with that. So inflation has definitely been an impact, but consumers are still flocking to the Trex brand. What about the stock? I mean, the chart is pretty amazing to behold. Um, as Paul said, you know, a lot of companies got to run up in the reopening um, push at the end of last year and then uh, cratered this year. But what happened in October and November? I mean, it just took off from like 80 to 140 in the span of a few weeks. Yeah, we were absolutely a beneficiary during the pandemic run up. As we moved into the later stages of the pandemic, we announced significant sales growth and then adding additional capacity in Little Rock, Arkansas. And with that, uh, the market may have gotten a little bit ahead of itself. In the back half of this year, coming out of our second quarter earnings, uh, we announced that we would be reducing the back half of the year by about $200 million to take into account inventory that had been built in the channel. You heard me mention earlier that our sales to consumer have been flat year over year, but our channel did build assuming that they would grow 15 to 20% in 2022. And we felt that we should be aggressive, get that inventory normalized so that we can start with the right level of inventories moving into 2023. So talk to us about the competitive nature of, of your business here. You know, how fragmented is it? Where, what is your position? How do you think about market share um, in your business? Yeah, composite decking and railing is a very unique business. There are three major players in the marketplace. Trex has about 50% market share. The number two competitor has about 25% market share. And the number three competitor has about 15% market share. So it is a uh, consolidated industry, and all three of the competitors uh, understand the value within the industry itself, uh, and we, we each make uh, the other better in the industry. So uh, the sustainability side of it, is that a benefit um, that consumers are, that are into? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. Uh, Trex is very unique in that 95% of the content that we use in our deck boards is recycled and reclaimed. A deck board is made of roughly 50% recycled plastic, and the other 50% is from reclaimed wood. We get that from furniture, flooring, uh, and other manufacturers that have wood scrap. So it's a very unique manufacturing environment where we have a lot of variability going into the plant with our raw materials, but our manufacturing technology allows us to strip out those that variability that comes through in the raw material and create a very consistent high value added product at the end of the line. What, what does that chain look like? It's so fascinating to me because, well, right now um, we've just come out of COP 27, right? Or maybe people are still there in Sharm El Sheikh talking about this, you know, global plastic problem. And here you are, you found um, here in the U.S., at least, uh, one, one small solution doing kind of your part. Where do you get the plastic? You know, what are the prices like? Um, how, do you, how do you put that all together? Rex has been using recycled content in our product uh, since day one. We've been in business for over 30 years now. So it's part of the culture 
of this organization to be doing green solutions. The push for ESG over the past years has been a benefit where more material has become available on the market. We are the largest buyer of polyethylene films in the marketplace, and we will source from all over the country and up into Canada. We'll ship to one of our two existing manufacturing locations and eventually a third one in Arkansas. Uh, From there, we can run that material either direct to our manufacturing line or we will send it through other processing manufacturing operations to create a more consistent product for our decking. So, Brian, talk to us about labor. You know, every business we talk to, just challenging to, you know, attract and retain labor. What's it like in your business? During the midst of the pandemic, we were adding a significant amount of capacity. While most organizations were just fighting to hold on to their existing labor, we were having to add about 30% more heads to our overall operations, and we were effective in doing that. It's fair to say it was quite a challenge. Since earlier this year, we've seen much more stability in the labor marketplace, and I expect that will continue as we go forward. Uh, and we, have, we don't have nearly the same growth requirements at this point from a labor uh, need perspective. Brian, great talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Brian Fairbanks there is the CEO of Trex. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.